I really thank you all for joining me in this Boogie Woogie, and I'd like to try a little experiment. I've been playing this Boogie Woogie at eight beats to the bar. I'd like to try playing it now at 16 beats to the bar. Welcome to Extended Clip, episode 44. I'm one of your hosts, Eddie Averill. I'm Malcolm Baum. I'm JT White. And today, our pairing is uh, a couple of TV movies. Because, guess what, baby? We're never going back to the movie theater. <laughs> I'm, I'm addicted to the idiot box. <laughs> <laughs> it is really... Uh, it's a, it's a really bleak outlook, but there is a possibility that uh, movie theaters, as we knew them, will no longer exist. And uh, even if they don't, you know, everyone's viewing habits have uh, hugely shifted, at least people who enjoy going to the cinema. So I thought I'd look at a little uh, a little made-for-TV action, a, little, a couple of things that were made to be viewed from your couch or your bedroom by a couple of great uh, big-screen directors. Well, I was just going to say, while watching those movies, it reminded me of the classic phrase, don't watch me, watch TV. Um, and that was going through my mind while watching these TV movies. Is that a classic phrase? Uh, I think it's a Max B quote, I think. I don't know. Someone someone Google okay. that. Fans Google that. Uh, but yeah, this double feature, you know, they're both TV movies from master directors that have to do with uh, modification of the body and, uh, you know, veers into body horror territory uh, for a brief moment in the A picture and for a good two thirds of the B picture. So uh, Behind the Candelabra, had you guys seen this one before? Yeah, I had actually seen it recently, and I have a little funny precursor story. I was back home for winter break with my parents, and my dad was picking out a movie for us to watch. And, you know, he likes Michael Douglas, maybe all those 80s movies about him cheating on his wife. Maybe that's it. I don't know. But um, he was uh, he picked behind the candelabra. And then once the gay, <laughs> the gay sex scene started happening, he's like, ah, come on. Like, ah. <laughs> and, and I was like, you chose this. Like, did you think yeah. this movie was not going to have gay sex in it? The Liberace <laughs> biopic <laughs> behind the candelabra? Let's read between the lines here. <laughs> oh, my God. What a great movie to watch with your dad. I know, right? <laughs> the whole fam. We enjoyed it. We had a good time. I guess he didn't like the certain parts. Yeah, but. Gay sex aside. <laughs> uh, so that is important, though, to like the background of this movie, because that's the reason that Soderbergh and co had trouble making it for so long. They couldn't get proper Hollywood funding, and that's why they had to go through the channels of HBO uh, to make kind of a prestige TV project out of it. Uh, you know, aiming for the Emmys instead of the Oscars. And this did actually kind of clean up at the Emmys, or at least, no, it didn't. Uh, this did well at the Emmys with uh, Michael Douglas getting a best lead actor performance for really one of his like goofier performances. But I guess you do have to ham it up to that level if you're playing Liberace, right? Absolutely. You got to do the voice. It's just so surprising, like in 2013, that this would be a movie that's like deemed as like too gay to be fund to be fundable uh because i mean yeah. especially i feel like now 
with so much like woke scolding and bullshit like that where like companies have sort of pivoted to being like allies and like paint or at least painting themselves as such and like trying to do more experimental like lgbtq stories um like that i feel like the stuff that they're making now is like really softball shit even compared to like behind the candelabra could be gayer there is definitely sure. oh, room for, sure. for more gay sex and more queerness in this. But, like, it's just surprising that, like, in 2013, like, a fairly recent moment, that this was something that, like, I don't know, studio, uh, like, execs would, like, want to pass on. I think I think it might be this. I mean, maybe just because they didn't, maybe in 2013, maybe some of that stigma was still there. But also just, like, this isn't exactly, like, the most positive relationship, the most like marketable, like love Simon type gay story. Yeah. This is very complex and it's not, I mean, if you're to take us on, if this were to be the only representation of gay people you've ever seen, you'd be like, well, I don't know about that. You know? No, <laughs> <laughs> you're right. It's, it's a very dark transactional, uh, in the end, incestual tale that like is really complex and, uh, very difficult and at the same time, such an easy film to watch because Steven Soderbergh is such a creative director and throughout this is just finding new and interesting ways to shoot this lavish lifestyle that they live. Uh, and yeah, it is a really like beautifully lensed film. You know, a lot of people... Uh, a lot of Soderbergh haters, uh, especially in his digital era, will claim that the yellow tint that he'll often use looks like a pee-pee. But I'm here to tell you that uh, that that tint is actually very well used in this film, uh, playing off of like the pastel yellow that's all over the mansion, and like you got yellow cars and gold all over the place. And I think that that scheme uh, with the titular candelabra, especially, uh, really. I don't know. It really works as a visual approach for Soderbergh here while he's, you know, not as stylistically at, uh, bombastic as he might be in some of his other films. I think uh, just like the excess of it all is where that lies. Mm -hmm. And like kind of like, yeah, as you're saying, like the yellow sheen that he uses a lot turns turns into like almost like a gold sheen. I feel like in this movie, I feel like it's just a, a slightly different shade of yellow than he's used to using. And, you know, it may not be as, you know, experimental as his more experimental ones, but I think in terms of, um, you know, just shot control or something like that, every single shot in this movie seems so, you know, well thought out, well controlled, you know, some really intelligent filmmaking going on here. Oh, yeah. I mean, Soderbergh, this is a period in his filmmaking where he's like uh, really just such an economic filmmaker, which is kind of crazy that this film stretches out to two hours and maybe it does feel a little slow in spurts, but judging it scene by scene, uh, every single one of these scenes feels so perfectly constructed on, uh, both like the narrative and the form, the way that he approaches the material is just kind of pitch perfect. Also with some surprises along the way that are always like, I don't know, Soderbergh is a filmmaker that he can be repetitive at times, but he also always finds ways to catch me off guard as I watch and rewatch his films. Yeah, he's good with the fan service like that, you know? I mean, it's, <laughs> it's like, because I think as a Soderbergh fan, watching his movies, you're like, well, how is he going to do this one? Like, how is he going to approach this, like, 
formalistically. Like that's that's part mm-hmm. of the fun, at least for me, watching his movies. We open in 1977 on Matt Damon getting picked up by Scott Bakula uh, at a bar. And right after that, then you see him working one day on a movie set. Matt Damon is an animal trainer and wrangler for a movie uh production company and that's a really great scene where you get to watch a little bit of the process of that and of course Soderbergh's so dedicated to showing the the nuts and bolts of the filmmaking process and that little glimpse of his prior day job before this all starts but uh then his friend who picks him up Scott Bakula Bob brings him to Vegas to see Liberace and in that sequence we get like a few audio leads or J knots or whatever you want to call it when you know the audio advances on to the next scene before uh visually what you're watching catches up to it and the way that Soderbergh uses that in this opening uh you know 10 15 minutes up till Matt Damon's character meets Liberace uh he's able to kind of give you so much perspective in such a short amount of time and I feel like the way that he's covering time with that editing technique is really smart Mm -hmm. yeah very calm and measured opening to a movie that you know kind of descends into the the personal chaos of their relationship pretty quick that's one thing I mean I like about those early sequences in terms of Uh, what Malcolm was saying with being measured is that like, obviously for the period, like Liberace is like famously closeted and uh, Damon's character is like somewhat so uh, himself. And I like that there's that perspective of that tension that gets like thrown into the mix and their like early interactions because it's like, on playing on top of like just sort of a flirtatious tone where it's like Matt Damon's not sure about the relationship of like uh, Liberace's other male compatriot, Billy Leatherwood. And then just like (laughs) socially like getting used to them, like making out like in front of each other. It's just so nice that there are these un like, I don't know. Um, indirect layers to the interactions that we're seeing in like almost all of the early ones. And I, I really love that first interaction where uh, we or not even the first interaction because they'll meet properly in the green room after or the dressing room after. But when uh, he's first watching Liberace perform and, you know, as the audience, it's your introduction to Michael Douglas as Liberace. Uh, the way Soderbergh shoots that performance and the way Douglas performs, you know, uh, is incredible. I don't know. I, I really was taken aback by that. It's a delight. And uh, Matt Damon, you know, when he says, like, It's funny that this crowd would like something this gay. <laughs> well, they have no idea he's gay. Yeah, and uh, what I just thought about, you know, thinking about that scene is that, you know, he kind of knows something that the rest of the people don't know about Liberace. And that kind of mirrors the end scene kind of in the funeral where he kind of has like that personal experience where, I don't know, he's seeing through Liberace's layers. And like, that's a common thing that's, you know, brought up again and again throughout this movie is the many layers of uh, that Liberace keeps to, you know, make public appearances or even, you know, private appearances too. Yeah. And you made a good point that that introductory scene where he watches him is like reflected back at the end. And then the very next scene where he actually meets him is also reflected in a really strange way because 
you you see uh, him meet Liberace and you know start to get uh, not really get accustomed to the lifestyle but like be introduced to the lifestyle and then you see Liberace's then protege uh, sitting in like the makeup chair looking like disapproving and like making fun kind of and then you see Damon in that exact perspective you know an hour later yeah no I like that the movie sort of forecasts the relationship and that perspective because it's like knowing like i don't know even the the minimal amount i knew about liberace going into it uh i kind of and just like the general tone and knowing that's going to be a relationship story you know where it's leading you but i like that it has early on signs where it's like um billy leatherwood is the jilted lover and you know that ultimately damon is going to wind up in the same position yeah and when he get like the formal instincts that soderbergh has that you know when he gets into that position it's much more devastating as you know as we identify with the damon character in this movie and like um kind of how he hears mike how michael douglas talks to all the other young guys that you know used to be him as he just stews you know, in his chair, you know, it's just devastating stuff. Yeah. Uh, so after that, uh, obviously he takes a liking to Matt Damon's character who helps him out with some dog medicine. And then, uh, and we should say, of course, Liberace has many, many small dogs that roam around the mansion and are very cute and good. Uh, but so he gives him some medicine and Liberace kind of lures him in and eventually hires him to move in and uh work for him in some sort of secretarial capacity uh just like working for him as his boyfriend essentially and so after that uh he moves in and gets to know all of the other uh, all the other people that work for him in that sphere including one uh ex-lover the houseboy carlucci who obviously has a very uh, bitter relationship towards matt damon throughout this whole thing it's a kind of classic uh, romance from there, you know. It's like uh, they have so some issues with jealousy because obviously one of them is a celebrity, and you know maybe sometimes uh, some of their uh, bedroom stuff it, they're not on the same page. So they do what any couple uh, in that situation does, and Liberace adopts Matt Damon's character. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, kind of once we get into the rhythm of their relationship, the kind of like uh, all the like the jealousy and the insecurity and the, you know, the desire for beauty that like uh, streams through in it. Um, Ignacy Vesky said like this is Soderbergh's Fassbender movie and that really made it click for me a lot of this movie because I totally think that's an apt comparison. This is like the midpoint of the movie, and this is where we meet, you know, Rob Lowe's character and where the kind of body horror element of this, this kind of like mid-movie detour into body horror as you meet, uh, yeah, the totally uh, Botoxed slash drugged out Rob Lowe, whose face doesn't move whatsoever, helps sculpt Matt Damon's face into that of Liberace after Liberace has him... Uh, you know, give him some plastic surgery to make him look young. And yeah, this is where the movie gets gross and creepy. It's like mm -hmm. you've adopted this man and you're giving him plastic surgery to make him look more like yourself. And you're also having sex with him. And 
it's just like also the way that Soderbergh shows their operations are is great. Like with the kind of old timey comedy piano music uh, with all these <laughs> gross incisions and stuff. Uh, very briefly shown, of course. Uh, mm-hmm. He doesn't want to gross out the HBO audience too much. Kind of reminds me of the tone of uh, John Carpenter in the morgue for body bags just kind of a yeah taking a little bit of glee inside <laughs> of the all the body mutilation but i exactly this is probably my favorite rob Lowe performance oh he's amazing i i don't I, I really couldn't think of a role that he's more perfect for and that he delivers in and like kind of like this stale smarminess it's great yeah he, he is pretty perfect in Tommy Boy. I will say that that oh. is a good bit of casting, but this is probably a better bit of casting, to be fair. I forgot about that. That's a, that's I a like nice him ball. in the second Austin Powers, too. He's good in that one. <laughs> <laughs> when, he, when he has the chance to bust out his comedic chops, that's where he really shines. <laughs> we got a murderer's rose uh, of Rob Lowe movies right there. <laughs> For those who have seen uh, one bad piece of entertainment and heard a good one, uh, you can very easily compare Rob Lowe's cadence in his Parks and Rec performance to that of Henry Rollins on his Sunday night radio show. Uh, they talk at the exam- same exact meter. It's insane. Once I figured it out, I couldn't stop thinking about it. It's yeah. Damn, Henry Rollins' radio show. What is, what's he up to? He's like an activist now, right? Shout out to Henry Rollins. He's like one of the best broadcasters, honestly, ever. Like His radio show is fucking God tier uh, if you ever get a chance to peep it because I don't even know if it's still going on uh, But because I, I haven't heard it in like four years, but it used to be one of my favorites. Anyway, back to uh, Behind the Candelabra. Speaking of some alternative music figures, <laughs> I was also reminded of uh, LCD sound systems losing my edge in a great speech by Michael Douglas where he talks about, like, I was the first one to ever look into the camera on TV and <laughs> I was the first matinee idol. And, you know, I, uh, and it was a really great, like, I was there uh, jealousy speech as you see. Uh, he's definitely past his peak in his career despite selling out all these crazy shows he's definitely you know on the downhill looking back at the good times Mm -hmm. and that's when kind of the sadness of his career starts to creep in as it moves uh into the deeper into the second hour of the film i yeah it's i was the first to look into the tv daft punk was playing at my (laughs) house One moment I think that comes before that actually that was a scene I really want to talk about is uh like I think it's also before like he starts to body modify Matt Damon um is where they're asking him like uh Damon's asking him why he's a catholic and like how he can still believe <laughs> Oh yeah if amazing he's gay. Oh my god And there's that it's like a beautiful like melodramatic like another like I forget what type of uh hue the film has there but it just looks so beautiful Oh it goes black and white there Oh yeah it go- yeah um and it's so melodramatic and it's uh, ultimately winds up Liberace's reasoning being that's like God sort of forgives him for his homosexuality. He's chosen uh, specifically. He's a special person. That's yeah. God chose him to be the one person that's allowed to be gay through the power <laughs> of John F. Kennedy's assassination. <laughs> through, through through pure talent 
And like, yeah, I I feel yeah. like that really explains like his desire to adopt his lover, right? Because it's like, I feel like he like <laughs> he wants to be everything. He like, just wants to break all the rules. Yeah, he wants to push boundaries. But uh, he's you know he's someone who wants it all. It reminds me of that Prince song. What is it like? Um, I want to be your lover. I want to be your brother and your sister too, or something like that. <laughs> Maybe, he was on that tip. He was on that type of shit. <laughs> Uh, once we get into the bod mod portion of the film, there's also a really funny gag where like Matt Damon can't sleep and he's like, oh, you're snoring. And he just like rolls over. <laughs> uh, Michael Douglas's eyes are wide open because of the surgery and he's just like snoring with his mouth open, staring at him asleep. Yeah, that's great. Also, like you know, the amount of artificiality that goes into Liberace's body, you know. Like, you know, of yeah. course the boat talks, but he even talks about getting implants for erections. Like, I didn't know. Oh, yeah, because his drive was uh, his sexual drive exceeded the strength of his like physical sexual drive. What is where implants, though? Did he get like a like a dildo implanted or something like that? Yeah, like... I was going to say maybe he got a second one. Uh, so as the relationship starts to crumble again in its new uh, physically and uh psychologically deteriorated state matt damon starts getting really into into snorting them yips it's it's boogie nights in that regard uh where the 80s come in and cocaine ruins our protagonist's life uh and they yeah they fall apart he has a big tantrum uh there's a really sad scene where his uh his mother or not his mother but rose the last woman who had adopted him uh and raised him through his you know late teen young adult years it seems had passed away uh and yeah they their relationship was terrible at that point but michael douglas you know calls him the private jet and they say oh essentially you know let's be nice to each other for a little bit uh and it's it's not like touching it's just depressing i guess and yeah there's a really funny scene right before that where there's like that's when matt damon is back in the role of the protege he's in that seat while there's these other two young men talking to liberace after a performance and he says uh they're talking about how they want on golden pond to sweep the oscars that liberace is going to play at and uh he says that he's so glad jane fonda gave up all of those causes she was always talking about <laughs> <laughs> and just made a nice movie with her father <laughs> yeah i love how much liberace I, I i imagine it's the same in real life but liberace puts on that that mask or whatever i mean i guess that's not a mask that's probably something he actually believes in his ideology come to think of it you know yeah stop, stop oh no he he's a psychopath that believes everything he says in this movie in my opinion no yeah yeah i was i had some reverse thinking there when i thought the yeah the the truth was a lie oh my god how does he get that whole thing down his throat it's bigger than his head <laughs> i mean i think that's one uh i mean to get to like the sociopathic elements of Liberace's character. I mean, it's introduced early on that the relationship is very like transactional uh, and like creepy where he's like, when they sleep in the same bed together early on, he's like, Oh, don't worry. I'm not going to try anything. And he's like, it's, it, it clearly shows how manipulative he is, 
But Soderbergh, I feel like, never makes a misstep in a way that I feel like other directors could make this seem sort of like homophobic because mm-hmm. there's something there are moments of the Damon uh Douglas relationship where it is like really beautiful and tender. And I think that he understands that even in these very manipulative and transactional relationships that there is obviously something keeping these people together and that they need to delude themselves. And he does a really uh, good job of like actually portraying that. Mm -hmm. No, I mean to be reductive, it like, it kind of is like reminds me of phantom thread and where it shows like the nuance of like a, a complex relationship, which might seem like kind of fucked up, but worked for them, you know, in some places. There were some good moments. His reaction to how him saying he was bisexual, it's pretty great. That's like, that's, yeah. that's my reaction to hearing someone's bisexual. <laughs> oh, that's great. <laughs> that's that's great. <laughs> Although I haven't seen the, the girls around, though. I haven't seen that, but... <laughs> But that's cool. (laughs) Oh, boy. Um, So, yeah, after the breakup, the film, instead of, like, following Damon's perspective for Liberace's death, like, their kind of breakup scene, I guess, and then they have one goodbye scene when he's really sick is kind of all you get. And after that, it's more detached. You know, you see, like, news coverage and stuff like that reporting uh liberace's death and the complications where they tried to hide that it was due to aids uh by saying that he had uh, cardiac arrest and you know uh that whole five minute back and forth procedural that soderbergh gives right after the emotional climax of the movie is a very odd step and a very clinical one too but that's like kind of what i like about him as a filmmaker is that he never gets that emotional. He always has that slight clinical distance, and it makes for films that, while sometimes they're not as easy to attach emotions onto, they're much easier to pick apart and have fun with while watching in that regard. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, this is... Uh, I, I used to think it was, like, mid-tier Soderbergh. I think it's, like, upper mid, and I'm going to go four bullets. I'm going to go four bullets as well. And I think I think that's a common criticism of Soderbergh sometimes is that he doesn't do emotion great. But I mean, honestly, I, I found the final piano scene, piano piano funeral scene, very very touching. You know, it didn't drive me to tears, but I was like, that's very nice and pleasant. And I think it's a nice way to end it. You know, for I was surprised how much I really enjoyed this after watching it like two months ago. Like it still played like I had just first watched it and. Uh, some good shit. Oh yeah, I also did totally skip over that last scene where, uh, yeah, that he goes to the few. That's when you, after watching like news footage and stuff, you get Matt Damon again at the funeral, and he uh, has like a flashback slash daydream about Liberace, kind of giving a final performance in the vein of the one that introduced him uh to Liberace in the first ten minutes of the film, and it's a it's a really great ending. It is kind of beautiful. Anyway, JT, go ahead. Sorry. Uh, it's all good. I'm just going to toss this one up with four bullets as well. Cha-ching. I feel like we've said a lot about the film itself, but one thing that uh, is both true of the man in real life and the uh, performance is such great costumes on Liberace, always dressed to the nines, so fucking <laughs> nice. 
Like the wardrobe oh, is yeah. insane and just like I think that's one of the moments that like really um sticks in about that introduction to Liberace because you get like this sequined glittering character um who just like is is so like alone on that stage except for him and the piano you instantly pick up on like the amount of narcissism and just like little flourishes like that tell you so much about his character and uh, i just wish i could uh be dressing as flamboyantly myself (laughs) keep working on it man i think you could i think you'll get there Just podcasting from a gold chair here. <laughs> we need more decadence and luxury. I love this podcast, but it is lacking in decadence and luxury. Uh, we'll be right back on Extended Clip to talk about body bags. I just don't understand why I cannot keep my hair on during the procedure. And we're back on extended clip. Uh, before we get into the second film, you guys see anything else worth talking about this week? Yeah, you know, I decided, you know, with all this time off, I might as well educate myself, right? And uh, what better way to do that through film? That what that's what makes you smart. And I watched, <laughs> I watched a little Adam Curtis documentary, all watched over by Machines of Loving Grace, which I guess is technically a TV docu-series. So just again with the TV movies, we're obsessed. Um, we're thinking forward from the future. But um, Adam Curtis, if you've never seen him, is a documentary who likes to make... He's a documentary? He's a documentary. Dude, his life is a movie. Straight <laughs> up. <laughs> oh, man. The great, great quotes of history. Last night was a movie for real. Adam Curtis. <laughs> <laughs> well... If you were to ask Adam Curtis, maybe hold the whole West as a movie, America and Britain, because he <laughs> likes to take kind of like pop culture or just popular, you know, political theory and like make a thread and connect it to how we live currently. And this one is about kind of how we all live with computers now. And it's really interesting, like kind of like the I- first idea of the computers that it would dismantle hierarchies and we'd all be on an equal playing field to like... You know, and there'd be a exchange of information that would maybe even stop the use of governments. That's what the people who, you know, started the government, not the government, the Internet thought. But, you know, it ended up not being that. We just, as the documentary, you know, points out, we just, you know, put our thoughts on websites and then the websites make money off of them. So that was pretty cool. I'm going to stop posting after that. And then I have, a, I have another one I want to mention which was an all-timer and uh, a possible all-timer for me, O.C. and Stiggs, but directed by Robert Altman. This, uh, this is like the devil probably mixed with the beach bum. Some great stuff here. Um, it's about like two spiteful like uh, upper-middle-class teens who hate their suburban surroundings and just try to goof on it as much as possible. They're just two pranksters up to no good who are you know vulgar, they're dirty, they're willing to do anything just to fuck with the rich guy across the street. And um, I don't know. I, I, I tend to like movies like that about bad boys. So that's what I watched this week. Yeah, that one. I mean, O.C. and Stiggs has been on my watch list for a long time, but I want to check out that Adam Curtis one for sure. Yeah, they're both good. The one thing I will say about O.C. and Stiggs, and I don't know, maybe it was my copy, but there is not a great copy of it existing, I don't think. Like, I think it's Ah, uh, yeah. But, it's hey, a Dr. T scenario. Even worse, though. 
Oh, like VHS level? I think I think the DVD might have been a VHS rip. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Ooh. I can't confirm that. That's rough. That's slim pickings, I tell you. Sometimes you got to do it for the cinema. One thing that I very thoroughly enjoyed uh, was 2009's The Box by Richard Kelly. I uh, popped that on um, after, I mean, when it was the big Richard Kelly doing the uh, Southland Tales rewatch. I've watched Southland Tales like quite a few times in the last like year or two. And so it's like, I'm not going to take that for a spin. I'll save that for a rainy day. Um, and I had been meaning to get around to the box for a while now. I'm a little disappointed 20 minutes in. I was like, there's no pussy in this. Um, <laughs> but despite a misleading title. <laughs> Where's it at? <laughs> despite a it's very. It's the titular role. <laughs> <laughs> this is like the aviator's wife all over again. <laughs> <laughs> that was all very true to the commentary. I was shouting at my television screen um, while watching it. But actually, it was a very good movie. And last week, I trashed James Marsden for a terrible performance in the Sonic movie. But he won me over um, with a pretty good one in the box. Like Cameron Diaz, Frank Langella going off. Um, It's based on a book that was later uh, uh, Twilight Zone, like an episode of the 80s Twilight Zone where uh, Frank Langella comes as this like mysterious stranger with a box on Cameron Diaz and James Marsden's door um, saying that if they press it, uh, they'll get a million dollars. But someone, a stranger, someone they don't know uh, is going to die. Um, But if you don't press the box, then he just, he just fucking dips. And (laughs) It's very, like, I wasn't sure, like, given the fact that this is the most recent film that Kelly has made, if I'm believing. I think he, you guys can back me on this. He's only done the three flicks, right? I believe so. Um, If I recall correctly. Yeah. Because I wasn't sure how much, like, Southland Tales, like, Donnie Darko, I'm not too hot on. um, But Southland Tales is such a weird, like voyage into a more lynchian territory um that's a little bit more ironic and i wasn't sure how much of the southland tales uh vein that the box would be in but it picks up like pretty strongly in that regard with some really weird like spooky shit like there are some pretty neat effects on like frank langella's uh face like half of it is like missing from some weird accident and he's like a part of like this shadowy authoritarian like agency. Um, yeah, it's a good time. If you enjoyed Southland Tales but are skeptical about Kelly, I would say you'll definitely like The Box. Nice. Um, yeah, I've wanted to watch The Box since I watched Southland Tales because I actually watched Donnie Darko like a few days before I saw Southland Tales for the first time. Both of them for the first time. And I just gave up. I just like kept thinking about Southland Tales. So I'll probably I'll probably get to boxing soon. I watched a few more TV movies actually, in addition to the two for our double feature. Um, the the main one I want to talk about is The City. 
This is a 1977 TV movie by a director called Harvey Hart. Uh, and uh, get a load of this. Get a load of this cast. All right. So you got Don Miami Vice Johnson. You got Robert Jackie Brown Forster. And you got Mark Body Bags Hamill. <laughs> you got that killer trio uh, leading you. And you get a very basic 76 minute or so, uh, like cat and mouse police thriller. And it's like really basic and uh, pretty dumb as the the motive and whatnot unfurls. Uh, but it's just like a really simple, competently shot uh, time capsule of a TV movie where you get to see a lot of like down and dirty uh, Los Angeles on the street driving cinematography that's like really fantastic that's definitely the peak of the movie is Robert Forster and uh, Don Johnson just driving around the streets of LA looking for Mark Hamill who in the middle of a shift working at a gas station uh, just fucking takes a wrench to a guy who's dry who's filling up his car <laughs> It <laughs> fucking just goes on a psychopathic rage and is just like going around torturing and just like running around being a madman and stealing cars and shit. That sounds fun. Yeah, as they track him down, they find out he's like trying to get to this famous country singer who is played by Jimmy Dean of Jimmy Dean Sausages. <laughs> uh, Jimmy Dean is like a super like old wise uh, country singer. Who's like, uh, you know, we could talk to the boy. We could, we could put some sense into him. Uh, and it turns out he wants to, he wants to kill Jimmy Dean's character because he thinks Jimmy Dean is his dad. Like he, he grew up without a dad, and his mom loved the records. And I was a little unclear on whether or not it was true, or if it was just him making it up, or whatever. Uh, the script is not very good to this thing, but it's fun enough to watch. You know, it's a good time, and. I found that because I was looking at the credits of that director, Harvey Hart, after I watched another TV movie of his called Like Normal People. Oh, wait, that's the same director? Yeah, same director. That's crazy. I didn't. Okay. Two years apart as well. Like Normal People uh, is a 1979 TV movie by Harvey Hart. And I have to come clean. I, I found this one through some problematic means. I was watching the new Louis C.K. special. You bastard. I'm done with this podcast. Hey, hey, hey. I know. Come on, man. We can't be. I... My, my, favorite part, my favorite part of the Louis C.K. special is having to announce that you didn't pay for it in order to say that you watched it. Mm. <laughs> like, yeah, no shit. Like, <laughs> I bought two copies, and I, I don't even like his comedy. I'm just trying to... I don't like the shift this culture has taken. <laughs> but anyway, uh, he, he, the specials, whatever. It, it has some really kind of detestable stuff. And it also has some good comedy because he's like good at comedy or whatever. I don't know. <laughs> but anyway, he gets a good chunk out of the film Like Normal People in which he like recounts the plot from 40 years ago, I'm sure, because he's wrong. <laughs> He gets the essence of the film, but he like definitely remembered it in a way that points to where his head is at and how he like categorizes people, kind of. <laughs> or maybe he misremembered it on purpose to make a good comedy bit. I don't know. Uh, but anyway, like normal people is a terrible, terrible and like very offensive film. 
uh, about like a, uh, a developmentally disabled young boy and it's narrated by his older brother who like throughout most of the movie is like really frustrated because his parents don't care about him because <laughs> he has a mentally disabled brother who they're like uh, they're like you can take care of yourself you know <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, but the movie is like really deranged it's very strange um i mean obviously it's just like i'm not gonna unleash uh that word that they say 150 times because like if you're gonna describe the film using the terminology that they use in the film you're gonna you know get you're gonna go ahead and get yourself canceled um so they send him to this like transitional living place uh where he learns how to integrate into society and he meets a woman there and like the workers at this place and this is when they're adults the workers at this place like enforce like a policy like they're not allowed to have relations or whatever which is very strange uh, it's a very like eugenicist film in that regard uh, where like even with their happy ending it's like please do not have children which is just terrifying and oh terrible God. but what he failed to mention uh very early on in the film he's working at the YMCA as like an 18 year old and there's like a little girl who uh like a middle schooler who is like trying to be nice to him or whatever and he she says that he's cute and he like sends her a valentine and she's 11 years old uh and then like so apparently some of the local kids get wind of him sending the valentine and so they send like this like pornographic letter to her as well (laughs) and in like one of the most deranged things i've ever seen it's like this mentally challenged man getting arrested for like pedophilia and like there it's like a 10 minute detour within the first third of the movie that never gets brought up again it's insane and it's in this like really weird movie of the week like learning jesus christ (laughs) type thing like it's so strange um i don't know so that's my tv movie movie corner and uh, i i did mention mark hamill is in body bags i watched that uh, TV movie he's in. I also watched Empire Strikes Back, and you know what? It's not as good as the first one. And here's my little secret: it's not as good as uh, Attack of the Clones or uh, Revenge of the Sith either. But we'll talk about that another time. Damn. Before before we get into the movie, I just wanted to uh, defend a uh, friend of the show and personal friend of mine, Whit Stillman, from because uh, I know he's <laughs> been getting a lot of flack lately for celebrating the death of the Bernie Sanders uh, candidacy, but. I mean, I mean, who did you think you were following? You know, <laughs> this is this is his time to troll. Like when John McCain dro- died, you know, all the leftist that, you know heroes. Yeah, they went to work. now this is his time to shine. And you know what? He did. He did. He did. He did. Uh, he did troll. He trolled hard, even though that is what he legitimately believes. But hey, yeah. No, I mean, look, you didn't see Adam McKay trolling when like Kamala dropped out. Like it, it, if he's supposed to be like the progressive Hollywood guy, you know, he didn't troll when John McCain died. Yeah, exactly. He should have been trolling. Yeah. So Adam McKay, bad. Whit Stillman, good. Um, <laughs> Whit. Oh God, we're we're running really long. We got to get yeah. to the second movie. Good evening. I was just taking a little break. It's been a busy night. Lots of new arrivals. I call them the arriving departed. So, Body Bags 
is a uh, anthology made for TV horror film uh, made by John Carpenter with the help of Toby Hooper for one segment. Now, the the framing device of this is John Carpenter as something of a crypt keeper uh, in a what's it called a mortuary? Is that where all the dead bodies are stored? Yeah, morgue. Mortuary oh, yeah. in the morgue. morgue. Same Duh. thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, the the mortuary I think is where they store them for good. Maybe maybe I'm wrong about that. Who but anyways, uh, so John Carpenter is chilling in the morgue. He's like a dead zombie crypt keeper dude, and he's like telling corny jokes, and it's it's dumb, but it's like kind of funny. Um, but you see him for a couple minutes at a time. First segment, gas station. A uh, couple of beautiful, beautiful wide establishing shots of this gas station that Carpenter will cut back to throughout the short. Uh, that establishing shot and every time it gets more scary because of what's been going on mm-hmm. and yeah carpenter is like a legendary filmmaker and i think the first one might be my favorite of the bunch mine too definitely i mean the atmosphere of the protective window gas station at night is just brilliant and like somewhere ripe for horror and you know who better than old johnny c to drop him in and just <laughs> let him do honestly just kind of going through his classic instincts and just making a really quality short. Yeah, no, this definitely capitalized on like a what has been a paramount fear throughout my entire life of working at a gas station late at night. And uh, just like, I don't know, it's such like of all the stories told, this is I think the shortest and most simple. And I feel like probably why it lends itself to being the most effective. I mean, I like the second one probably the most out of the three, but uh, this one isn't far behind. So this one, uh, you meet our protagonist, Anne, a young woman who is pulling up to her first night working at this gas station. Now, she's worked at a gas station before, so she gets, you know, how the job is done. And I like that attention to detail on that, like, workmanship kind of thing. Not always with a man, if you know what I mean. Uh, (laughs) Because this one, Carpenter's giving it up for the ladies. Yeah, this is this is for the ladies for sure. So this is basically like the end of a fucking slasher movie. Like that's what I love about John Carpenter is he gets how horror movies work and how to like deconstruct what elements of them he needs for this short form version of one. So it's essentially like she's a final girl in a slasher movie and the slasher is her coworker who she meets right away who hands off the shift to her, you know, this guy Bill. And yeah, it like starts out pretty procedurally, you know, she deals with some customers, she gets locked outside, the tension builds as the customers get weirder and, you know, some of them are played by people like Wes Craven or Sam Raimi. Uh, Sam Raimi actually is a dead guy that falls out of a closet wearing a suit that says Bill, not Bill himself. But that's the thing, this thing, there's a lot of cameos by directors and it's like a meta, like fun uh, look back at all the fun that these guys had in the seventies <laughs> and eighties making movies, despite the fact that now in the nineties they're working in TV. Yeah, definitely a victory lap in that sense. Although, yeah, like as you said, maybe the future wasn't exactly victorious. But I, le- I love the procedural aspect of this short, where uh, you know she's meeting with a bunch of people buying gas or various goods at this you know protected window gas station, and they're all like. They're all kind of off, except for one of them seems pretty affable, who comes back at the end. But she has to, like, uh, 
determine if they're just regular guy creepy or just like serial killer creepy, which I think is kind of fun and pretty woke. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And you hear in the beginning, uh, like the inciting incident really of this thing, not just her showing up to work, is that you hear on the radio, both in the car and at the gas station, that a local killer has struck again, this woman. And uh, when we find out that the killer is Bill, the employee, it's like he must have gotten back to work pretty fucking quick or they found that body really late. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, uh, the tension ramps up as uh, she goes to investigate uh, this homeless man who had been sleeping in the bathroom. She finds his dead body on a truck. And this is where we get into Carpenter using the gas station slash mechanics garage as like a horror playground. He's using the stuff to what's it called? The lift. (laughs) I was, yeah, car lift. I didn't exactly know the name for it. He's using the lift and he's even, he introduces this one musical theme and the music throughout this is great. Carpenter always on his shit with his musical themes. There's one in this where he samples the noise of like the tires of the car going over that little rope that makes the bell ding, you know, uh, Uh, he gets samples out of those and then adds his synth loops on top of it to make a really cool, uh, musical theme for like the end of this. Yeah, and once it once it kind of gets into the horror aspect of it, you kind of see him work with his regular tools. I mean, the sense of POV in this to build tension and horror, you know, within the especially car garage scene, I noticed was very well done because it's, you know, you kind of lose track of how many players there are, you know, because I think um, leading up to it, it's like it's almost thinking like maybe this homeless man is doing the killings or she's highly suspective of him and I know it tricked me. Basically, once this thing like kicks into action, it's her, you know, trying to defend herself against this guy, Bill. Uh, There's one really great cut where she picks up a wrench and like that's when, you know, she's, you know, down to fight for herself. And it cuts from a close up on that wrench to this really low level tracking shot uh, with the wrench kind of in the top right part of the frame following her going into the garage. And I don't know, Carpenter's amazing at building suspense through the basic mechanics of filmmaking, camera movements, cuts, staging of actors, you know, he, he knows what's in his toolbox like a good mechanic and how to use it. And uh, yeah, this is him using just like a base template of a screenplay really nothing of a script and just using his skills as a horror filmmaker to make just a really fucking great 25 minute opener yeah especially that last sequence where um she thinks maybe she's you know killed him and she's just waiting uh like almost across the street or just away from the gas station he slowly gets up closer towards her i mean it's all it's all very masterful stuff Yeah, so the guy who had left his credit card behind, the one normal customer she got, came back, and it's funny, because you would think maybe he's just going to, like, save her, and it's going to be kind of annoying in that regard, but instead he tries to, and just, like, gets owned by Bill, and he's all bloody and shit, too, and then she uh, gets in control of the lift, and just, like, fucking squishes Bill's body, and you just see his blood flying all over the place as the guy who left his credit card there is just, like, watching, just like, (laughs) what did I get myself into trying to hook up with this gas station lady? (laughs) Such a money kill. 
Oh my god, it's such a good kill. The, all the like physical injuries in this anthology are pretty incredible. I mean, this is much more dedicated to the destruction of the body than behind the candelabra. Dan, was that a dog? Yes, that was my dog shaking. Uh, Hell yeah, what's up, Scooter? My apologies for that. But uh, to relate to, uh, in terms of behind the candelabra, or being more obsessed with the body than behind the candelabra, this also mirrors the TV movie format, I would say, much more than behind the candelabra. I mean, both like are definitely cinematic, but when I'm thinking about a television movie, just, I mean, probably because of like budgetary constraints is one, but it's like more of a laid back like time. It's not the, not the yeah. high stakes of a, a, a usual movie that's going to bring you out to the, the box office. And I think the Carpenter like interludes, which were like, cause this was originally supposed to be a TV series, but then they recorded the Carpenter like things to weave it all together to be a flick right Mm -hmm. but like also i think that he carpenter's such a cinematic filmmaker that him taking a step back to like televisual aesthetics it's it's not something he's gonna do so he just like takes like minor step back steps back and then is able to still get that kind of because you're right about the tone it is does feel more like tv despite when you break down like what he's doing formally it's still being outstanding uh but yeah usually and not always but usually he shoots in cinemascope and then this one is just in standard widescreen like one uh 1.85 or whatever uh so you know uh, he's making the small steps towards the tv medium (laughs) yeah i would say there's a lot of formal control in this one maybe more so in the second one that he directed which is has a more fun tone but this one does kind of feel more like his classic work. Uh, so let's get to that second one, Hair. Just a full head of beautiful living hair. Call now for an immediate appointment. Operators are standing by 24 hours a day. Remember, after my Roswell hair growth procedure, I bought the company. You open on a man named Richard who is worried about his hair thinning. Uh, this one is a lot more laid back and like funny and I don't know, I, I didn't love it while I was watching it either time that I watched this movie, but looking back, it's just like such a chill and funny tone that you never really get fully from Carpenter that you know he's able to attain if he wants to, uh, that I, I kind of do love this middle segment. Its tone is definitely its strongest aspect. And I mean, even like those first like five minutes where you don't even get into the horror where... You just have this bald man basically like ruining his relationship about by being too insecure. It's like, you don't like me when I'm bald. Just like, how could you look at me? Some real, some humorous stuff. He goes to the barber and the barber's like, uh, oh, I'm not going to cut it. I'm just going to style it. It looks, it looks kind of good after that, to be honest. Yeah. It's one of the funniest things in Carpenter's whole filmography, like where it cuts to him outside and the needle drop is the David Crosby almost cut my hair. And he's just like admiring all these people on the street walking by with long hair, men and women alike. And eventually the camera pans down to a dog that has like long flowing hair in the wind. Hilarious. Hilarious. Incredible. And Carpenter rides that needle drop so hard too. Like he rides it for that whole visual gag and still like then 
cuts back to him at his apartment as the guitar solo is fading out kind of slowly. (laughs) And you know that, you know, dad rock head John Carpenter was heavy vibing out to that in the editing room. Oh, yeah. And at the start, it's like it starts with a hot blonde woman flicking her hair and it's like is what's what's yeah. he about to do right now i'm like what's going what's going to go on right now and then you know it's you're right he's just appreciating long hair in general all the fabulous <laughs> of the world so funny <laughs> yeah i know this definitely sort of gave me inspiration to grow my hair out long during quarantine it's just like <laughs> i i really like it got that aspect of just well from what i'm assume from baldness just bitter envy of the of the haired men in the world uh so he sees a he sees a commercial on tv for a product for uh hair restoration and he's bought so many products already but this one seems to be the key because uh, the testimonial is from the ceo of the company who said after he had his treatment he bought the company uh which is really funny and you see it twice too uh and so he gets a meeting with this doctor. He chooses from a variety of haircuts. He chooses the stallion, which is a uh, a long kind of like Norwegian black metal guy haircut. Uh, and it just like he puts the bandaid on and wakes up overnight with just like four feet of hair just flowing in the wind. <laughs> And all his problems are solved temporarily. You know, his wife wants to have sex with him again. He's a sex god. That's pretty much it. But still, but still, that could solve a lot of your problems there. That was the only problem. Like, we don't know what this guy does for a living. We don't know anything except that he doesn't want to, f- like, him and his wife are having problems because of his insecurities about his hair. And I love how elemental both of these Carpenter stories are, where you don't really get to know very much at all about any of these people. <laughs> he just, like, uses them as objects for horror. And I-, I love that he's able to do that and still make a great film out of it. You yeah. Know? And I love how much of this one, like, because I feel like we, we get into the very the horror very late in this one. And I just love how much dicking around he does with just the, uh, with Richard (laughs) lamenting being bald. And then we get like a lot of, a little bit of the fun and games of him, like being like, Oh, I have hair again. And then he just like very neatly wraps it up with this quirky, like B sci-fi plot that just like is absurd and, and stupid and silly, but like it, flows so much with the material that he's working with yeah exactly so what starts to happen is he is growing hair at a rapid rate that he can't keep up with he's going to the barber every day you know and then when he gets a haircut you see this little worm kind of thing like uh squirming away from the hair and you realize right away that's what it's going to be but you get like 10 more minutes of him trying to figure it out uh which include him seeing one of those little worms in his throat which i gotta say i was having a little itchy throat moment there myself while watching it and uh, that that freaks me out to my core. <laughs> that really resonates. A little with bug you. crawling in your throat—that's crazy. I I would hate that. But anyway, he finally goes to the doctor, and the doctor doesn't put much of of a fight. Like he just straight up admits, like, "Yeah, I'm like a bunch of little worms that are controlling <laughs> a man." <laughs> And he's like, look at all these worms that are in you now. Like, we eat brain, and you're so stupid that your brain was really easy to get to. And, you know, this guy's brain, it's dead by now, probably, I guess, right? Yeah. <laughs> it's a really funny, like, a dumb sci-fi twist that is completely welcome in this context. 
Yeah, the the tone of that ending is just kind of like we got you, dumbass. No, wheel the way. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I love uh, Deborah Harry as the the horny nurse that coaxes yeah. him to you know, yo, you gotta do it, you gotta do it. He's like, oh yeah, I guess yeah, I, I guess I'll do it. Good stuff. The next short film is the one by Toby Hooper called I. And this one stars Mark Bodybags Hamill. <laughs> <laughs> I love his new nickname. Yeah. <laughs> oh, you mean Mark Hamill? From from the third segment, I am Bodybags? Yeah, I know him. <laughs> yeah, Mark Hamill plays a baseball player who I love right away. Like, he's on a hitting streak and he's like... All of a sudden, you're knocking the hell out of that ball. I don't know. I'm seeing it real good. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like, I. You're like, oh no. I hope, I hope nothing happens to that. His sight. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> Um, so he has like honestly a terrifying car accident uh, where he's like reaching for a tape that's like in his box of cassette tapes because he just wants to rock out while he's on the road you know and I feel like in the cell phone era we do a lot more than just like reach for a box of tapes you know Mm -hmm. Uh, and it did make me feel to say the least sus about my my past behavior and I'll no longer text and drive (laughs) Hey, I mean, maybe you're just good at it. Like, I, I've on long drives, I've sure will just look at my phone and while I'm driving <laughs> <laughs> on long highways. I'm sure some of your finest tweets were sent from the road. Pop, honestly, yeah. <laughs> just being honest. So he gets a piece of glass, uh, a shard of glass from his windshield. Uh, directly into his eye and he gets an experimental eyeball transplant uh, which is pretty cool and uh, his new eye sees death all around him and it's fucked up he has these visions of these dead people uh sixth sense much but he he doesn't know how to deal with it and uh, he also has problems with his wife uh, his wife doesn't want to make love to him unless he has the le- the contact lens in that makes him look not fucked up the blue eye contact in yeah it's like we got to make sure both of those eyes are nice and blue he throughout this whole thing like uh keeps seeing all these like dead bodies coming back to life and all this violence and these flashbacks and he there's a really terrifying sex scene where he gets really violent with his wife because he's having these flashbacks to someone who was violent with a partner and uh, it is really terrifying honestly toby hooper very good at making people uh unsettled to say the least but after uh he like he wakes up occasionally and realizes how much he's like hurting his wife and he's like struggling through this and he's doing all this research into what he's seeing in these visions and he discovers the story of a slasher uh like and that's all of these movies just like take parts from the type of movies that these directors uh really helped bring to the forefront and like it's i love that like the meta commentary kind of extends to Hamill on the computer, essentially researching the plot to a slasher movie that one <laughs> of these guys could have made. But he turns out uh, the eyeball that he gets is from that slasher who was killing women with garden shears. Yeah. You'll see like these uh, flashes of uh, like someone in his ditch outside or whatever, you know, like a buried body, which I thought one of those, uh, 
buried bodies he sees is one of is the large blonde uh or not the large blonde the blonde large breasted woman in the <laughs> John Carpenter gag in between one of the movies <laughs> where her tits were too big and he can't close the I don't know what like the cubicle coffin the freezer door. Oh, yeah the freezer <laughs> I don't know what those things are you, but yeah if you've been in a mortuary a morgue you'll know what I'm talking about <laughs> Obviously, these drawers were built before breast implants became so popular. Yeah, so he ends up taking out his own eye, his, uh, you know, slasher transplant eye with those garden shears. And it's a really gruesome fucking eye stabbing. I, I love that scene. Mm-hmm. And then we go back to John Carpenter, who slips back into a body bag because he was actually a dead body that was uh, pretending not to be. Or he was a dead body. It was a guy pretending to be a dead body who was going back to being dead now. Uh, and then we see him get like operated on by uh, Tom Arnold and Toby Hooper to finish off the film. A real sick ending for a twisted pervert yeah. like John Carpenter. I mean, obvious comparison. <laughs> I love. I I really do like these John Carpenter midsection scenes, and I I would have taken a whole movie of this this kind of character. You know, if you're asking me. <laughs> But it does really remind me of like when Jerry Lewis would like be in character before his movies and just act goofy as fuck or have someone do that for him. Like it's just uh, <laughs> it's I, I, I like that stuff. Yeah, it's a little Liberace in showmanship. Yeah, <laughs> real flashy. There, you know? <laughs> uh, how did you take to that third segment, JT? Um, yeah, I was definitely my least favorite, but I feel like. I, I don't know what we had mentioned. Those images of just like brutal violence definitely stick out as a high point. I feel like they had to do a little bit more work getting to uh, getting there than Carpenter did in his previous in the previous two segments. But it was funny because watching the hair segment, I thought it would be a lot like the uh, Simpsons Treehouse of Horror segment where Homer gets snakes hair and starts acting evil like him. <laughs> but little did I know, it was the Mark Hamill eye section that was more like that Simpsons clip or episode. I feel like the third one, its most valuable asset is just like its density of gruesome images. Um, I, I would also agree that's probably my least favorite out of the three as well. Yeah, I feel like there's, there's a scene or two where Hooper's able to build that uneasy feeling uh, and sustain it for like a scene. But for the most part, I'm kind of just waiting for like the gross out gags, which is unfortunate because he is a really good filmmaker. But yeah, I feel like maybe the script just isn't quite paced right. Maybe he's not fit for, you know, a half hour segment. Maybe he needs that full night. Maybe we should have lived with this miserable Mark Hamill baseball player for two hours. <laughs> <laughs> or think, Okay, 90 minutes. 90 minutes. I think fair. that was the solution. <laughs> Drop two hours yeah. on this. Um, so I would say the first... I was just going to say the first segment, but I'm going to say fuck it. The first two segments are like four bullets. The third one, I'm going to say, is more of like a three... And the middle stuff is pretty cool too. So I'm going to give this one three and a half bullets. Damn. That's, you know, I'll do that too. All right. I think the first one I'll give a four and a half. I really like that one a lot. Second one, I'll give a four, four bullets. That is Um, just, just unbeatable tone, unbeatable goofiness from that second segment. 
And the third one, I'll give two and a half. To be honest, I two and a half bullets. I kind of did get the zone out with that third one. I'm going to be honest. But yeah, yeah I'm going to go with same as Eddie, three and a half bullets. Yeah, overall, I'm going to say three and a half bullets as well. Um, this is like a nice, I don't know, it's a three and a half bullet classic. When I think of the three and a half bullet movies out there in the world, they're like ones that you don't have to, like, as Mark Marin would tell you to avoid, you don't want thinky pain. So, uh, <laughs> 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 a, a, oh, jeez. A, a three and a half bullet movie is like, you don't have to think about it too hard. It's just like, it's there, it's nice, you can chill, you can hang. And, uh, yeah, this, um, the first two segments, I would say, um, four bullets for me as well. Uh, Carpenter really has like two pretty different tones that like pop in their own unique ways. But then the third, um, yeah, I don't know, just all stuff we previously mentioned drags a little bit. Doesn't have like, it's not, I feel like there's a little bit too much of trying to in, invest in Hamill's like baseball player character at first. Um, where I feel like if it took like a, a little bit more of a pulpier uh, angle to it, I feel like I could have enjoyed it a little bit more. But overall, a good ride. I could see myself like hitting this with a rewatch a few times. This is like a hanging out, showing it to the friends. Probably like haven't seen because it's a more obscure flick. But yeah, a good time. Damn, we went all four stars on the first all or uh, no. Damn, no. we went all four. I know. Uh, <laughs> I was going to take it over, but that would be insincere. Uh, but we did. Yeah, we went all four bullets on the first one and three and a half on the second. That's a double shot of the sixth sense. Cha-ching, baby. I think that's been happening a lot lately with these quarantine episodes. I think we've been sixth sensing it. Yeah, we're, we're going hive mind. Total uh, hive mind, total period sync, menstrual cycle sync, all that <laughs> shit. Yeah. You can always email us at extendedclippodcast at gmail.com. You can always reach us out on Twitter at extendedclip69. I'm at iPod underscore video. I'm at Bitchface Palace. Uh, I'm at Tallboy Thin Legs. And yeah, you could follow us on Letterboxd too. All three of us, I believe, have links in bio. Um, yeah. Do you have, a, you have a double feature for next week, JT? Yes, I do. I, um, I don't know. Today I got to thinking. I'm like, I'm, my heart aches for the youth of America. I, uh, <laughs> oh, no. Uh, this I feel... isn't ha- no, no, no. This isn't how you introduce it. <laughs> no, no, no. Let me, let me do it. Let me do it. Uh, yeah, this is sincerity not, at its, it's highest not, form. It's not, uh, it's not, it's not the way you think I'm going with this. No, I, my heart bleeds for the youth of America because, uh, <laughs> Quarantine is interrupting a lot of graduation ceremonies. A lot of people aren't experiencing classic school antics. It's like a, it's a bad time for a lot of students. And the education system, I mean, even, even on a good day, even when we're not stuck, uh, pretty bad. And I, I have two raunchy flicks about how how bad it is sometimes to be a kid <laughs> and be in the mix <laughs> when you're having a real bummer time at school. Uh, <laughs> and so, 
um, the first the A movie is 1987's uh, Rita Sue and Bob Two by Alan Clark. I'm not sure if this was one of his television films, but Alan Clark, I believe, uh, predominantly worked with like British TV movies. So that's a link to this week. But then the next one is 2011's Bad Teacher. Is there any TV movies you would recommend? The only, I mean, think, I was trying to think about TV movies uh, today to try and uh, recommend some. But I came up, oh, actually, no, I have two. I just thought of one. Um, but the first one is related to Alan Clark. I've seen his version of Elephant, which is what inspired Gus Van Sant to name his uh, Elephant elephant as well um but it's talking about the elephant in the room with violence in terms of uh the ira and the uk um and it's just a collection of like gun violence where you're not sure the details of everything um it's just scenes of like people getting shot sort of removed from context you don't know who's on what side but it just brings the violence to the forefront and that's really uh brutal and uh quite a good flick also i think pretty short too probably like only 40 minutes but there's a little like criterion box set called the golden age of television that's like a bunch of like 50s maybe 60s like teleplays um that I've watched a handful of that are pretty good. There's one called The Comedian um, that's, I think it's Mickey. Yeah, it's Mickey Rooney is like an arrogant showman who's like has his own TV show and is just a tyrant and a dick to everyone around him and sort of the hubris that he gets. And the also in that same box set is uh, the original version of Marty, um, which has... Uh, Livia, the actress that play would later play Livia Soprano, is in it, and that one's pretty good too. Uh, a TV movie I'd like to recommend is Cyber Seduction: His Secret Life. It's uh, about a high school kid who develops an addiction to internet porn so intense that it begins to destroy his life and tears family apart. And uh, on the on the poster for this said movie is a you know a dark figure of a boy on a laptop, and then on the top half of the poster are computer keys that say sex explicit adults only xxx <laughs> forbidden um this is a lifetime classic seek it out uh yeah there's i mean i feel like uh, a lot of european auteurs had some tv movies I, I i i'm pretty sure one of the big long bergman late period ones is a tv movie right yeah uh, fanny, and fanny and alexander or whatever i haven't watched that shit but i will recommend on that european art house shit uh, Claire Denis, U.S. Go Home. You can't, it can't hurt. It's one of the best movies she ever made, and it's really incredible. It's uh, a throwback to the 60s. You may recall in a certain French New Wave film from the 60s, the phrase U.S. Go Home spray-painted on the wall. How about that? If you email Extended Clip Podcast <laughs> what movie that that's from, I will uh, reply, you got it. <laughs> it'll be confirmed we'll confirm that uh but it's taken it's taken place in the 60s and the letterbox log line is in a suburb in paris martine wants to lose her virginity 
Uh, I feel like it's a little more dense than that. It's more of just like a portrait of her as a character over that time period, which in which those desires are, you know, at the forefront. Uh, you get a nice Vincent Gallo cameo. Uh, oh, not even yeah. a cameo. It's like a, it's a pretty good performance from him, you know. And uh, you get an iconic, uh, with most Claire Denis films, you get some iconic uh, music scenes with people vibing out to rock and roll music, which is just one of the great pleasures in life. You gotta love that. Um, you know, I just wanted to give a quick reference to a Vincent Gallo interview where he's being attacked by four uh, critics. And his response to them is like, I've seen 40 Ozu movies with the subtitles off. Uh, <laughs> that's always stuck with me that's always stuck that's with a me. real that's a real james murphy losing my edge type bit uh, <laughs> i was there when they first brought the ozu prints with no subs <laughs> <laughs> we just focused on me's on scent <laughs> oh man um i'm not gonna end the podcast with losing my edge i'm, I'm gonna fade us out to that god tier dad rock John Carpenter used uh, one of my favorite dad rock songs ever and almost cut my hair but uh, we'll see you next week thanks almost cut my hair it happened just the other day it's getting kind of long I could have said it wasn't my way